Rusty Quill presents. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The West Side Fairy Tales is a dark fiction and horror podcast. The story you are about to hear is violent and disturbing. Exercise discretion before listening.
Previously on Scars in Time Ash returned to her own time, her own life, after months away. Her feelings of victory are short-lived, however, as she finds the town and her relationship with Darcy has been on the decline in her absence. The sickness dreamed up in the doctor's secret basement clinic has spread throughout town, and the mood amongst the town natives is dire. A conversation with Bobby Chatterley, the mayor, illuminates as much as it obscures, but one thing is clear. It's on Ash Littletree to pick up the hammer and begin swinging. Without further ado, Scars in Time, Chapter 17, The Clinic. I was quite rudely reminded that I was 50 years old and not in the best shape before I finally managed to knock a hole in that rough wall, separating me from the doctor's forgotten clinic. I felt a sudden and serious pop between my shoulder blades and then in the small of my back that dropped me to my knees. Pain, a chilly sword unlike any I'd felt in my life, trickled up and down the length of my spine. I gritted my teeth and continued on anyway, smashing at the bricks until they gave and sagged suddenly inward, producing a cloud of thick gray dust that set me to coughing. I retreated to the back of the basement and waited for the cloud to clear before approaching the hole I'd made. It was far larger than I'd thought, and all the bricks around it seemed loose. I touched a dangling chunk near the upper rim of the hole and jumped back when it turned to powder in my hand, and set a dozen or more bricks to steadily tumbling out of the false wall. I soon discovered that the concrete facing on my side of this wall was about the only thing holding these bricks in place. If I weren't a small woman with little familiarity swinging a sledgehammer, I might have burst through in a few hard strokes. As things stood, I was no John Henry. So when I finally had the thing big enough to fit myself through, I was filthy with dust that formed a sort of cake over my sweat-soaked clothing. I left the sledgehammer laying against the wall and raised my lantern through to the other side. I could make out the familiar lines of the receptionist's office amongst the swirls of debris. The falling dust cast shadows that danced oddly in the lantern's light, moving over the walls like ghosts. I stepped through. The office was much as you'd imagine a receptionist's office might look like, though I couldn't think who might have served as the doctor's receptionist after he'd passed into the state I'd left him in. It was difficult to remember him as the man I'd known for a brief while, Dr. Braun Starling. So little of him was left by the time I'd fled that odd period in this house. More so, I couldn't fathom what purpose a receptionist might even serve in this place. The illusion of routine sets mice at ease. I thought to myself. I further remembered Mr. Blot's mad dash up to the kitchen in my last day there. I thought of the barred gate at the end of this office as well, and how a reliable person shutting that thing when necessary might have utterly changed the events of that morning. 
the same gate hung ajar in this future iteration of the house. The gray enamel that had covered the bars was either boiled or baked off, leaving only bare, blackened metal that had rusted in spots where the ash had fallen away. I touched it with just the tip of my finger and it swung gently aside, screaming all the while. If that woman, my ghost, the poisoned muse, haunted the upper floors of this house, I I know not what haunted this forgotten basement clinic. But I could feel it, powerful and laying as thickly in the air as the dust swirling about my lantern. I lifted the light high overhead to better take in the room and grimaced. Something terrible had happened before this place had come to an end. Bones lay on the floor here and there, only partially recognizable for what they were in most cases. Nearly all I came across were blackened and heat-cracked or worse, twisted and warped like thin plastic left in a hot car. I bent over a skull, tilting my light to get a better look at it. The cheekbones and eye sockets were warped in a way I knew fire could never be responsible for. The thing was laying inside one of the prison cells the doctor had built into the walls. The wire glass partitions had melted outward to hang from the windowsill like a bib, possibly from heat. But the skull made me think otherwise. Its crown had twisted upward like a funnel. Every tooth was missing and the jawbone had almost totally fused with the base of the skull in a sort of wide, smooth hole. I cast my light over a pile of bones. They were collected in a way that made me think of somebody slowly melting in place. The other possibility was that somebody had gathered a full set of human bones and piled them in the corner here and in a few of the other cells, as well as through the interior of the clinic. Now that I had the run of the clinic to myself, I absolutely did not want to be there. The place felt haunted, like I said, but moreover I felt watched, followed by dozens of eyes. I entered the operating suite where I'd last seen the doctor. Everything was pretty much in order, I guess you could say. Burned leather and padding was all that remained of the operating table, along with the ash-frosted machinery beneath. The tables of syringes and surgical implements were right where I left them, though I'm sure they'd been stocked and restocked plenty since my departure. I stepped back into the main area, noticing for the first time, really, the heavy steel grating in the middle of the floor there. I don't make a habit of taking in sewer drains, but as I approached, I realized I could hear some steady noise beneath the grate. It had maybe always been there, just beneath the noise of my feet on the floor. It wasn't too loud, just the occasional brushing, scritching, scratching noise you'd hear from a nest of mice. I held my light up and then quickly retracted it, stepping a few feet back and trying to set my mind to rights. There was water down there, but it wasn't draining or flowing. Perhaps it had leaked through the foundation in the years since the doctor or... Whoever had this awful place walled away and forgotten. In any case, the water was certainly stagnant. Beneath the smell of fire, the fetid reek of still water was powerful in this place. I had stepped back because there were people shuffling around in that square-sided pool. 
Or at least, what looked like people. I took a breath away from the stench of the sewer and lowered my lantern over it. Light caught in dozens of eyes. Perhaps thirty sets altogether. The lot of them were packed in shoulder to shoulder. They grew more agitated as I lingered over them, coughing and hacking and never taking their eyes off me. Between the odd and funnel-shaped slopes of their heads and the blackness covering their bodies, seeping out of their mouths even as I watched, I knew it was better to leave them down there. The eyes looking at me were as blackly flat and dead as a crab's eye stalks. I lifted my light to get a better sense of the watery cell where these things had lived, or been kept, I suppose, for God knows how many decades. Though much of what there was to see was either submerged or blocked by their bodies, I could make out the lower throat of the roller chute just over their heads. Beyond the thickest bunching of them hung a tangle of battered pipes and boxes I knew were a furnace. A body furnace. It didn't take but a second for me to cross-reference those pipes with the layout of the upper floors. They would lead directly down from the great hearth that dominated the central hall, connecting the place I lived to the horrors laying submerged beneath my feet. I remembered one of my oldest visions in this place, of a burning person crawling from that hearth to lay in flame and staining ash upon the central hall's massive tile mosaic. Plenty of information, but little in the way of revelations. If anything, I at least knew what the final stages of the sickness I'd accidentally unleashed on Guncotton might be. The thought of little Albert rotting away into one of those shambling, idiotic things in the water made me shiver. One of the creatures shifted and spat at me. I'm glad I wasn't too deep in my thoughts to hear it. It sounded like any middle-aged smoker hawking up a loogie to clear their throat. But the spitting itself was like a little toy cannon being fired. I jumped back instinctively, holding my lantern out as a sort of shield. It caught the hunk of black tar the thing had spit on its fuel reservoir, which immediately started smoking. Fuck, I said, hopping back just in time to dodge another valley of black wads. They were all spitting at me now. Acrid yellow smoke curled up from the hissing pools they left on the pitted concrete. I retreated to the doctor's office, shutting the door and hoping it would hold if the things managed to start hitting it. I was momentarily frozen, trying to think of something I could do to get out of this place. The black wads were falling like rain throughout the center of the clinic, and God only knew what might happen if I stepped in one. I knew for sure what it would do if one hit me. The memory of Mr. Blot's face smoking as he hacked that black grease out of his lungs wasn't an easy sort of thing to forget. I snapped and looked around the office, remembering the other bit of trivia I'd gathered from Mr. Blot's last, horrifying moments. The doctor had poured some sort of powder over his face to stop the reaction. The ensuing clouds had filled the kitchen with a nasty-smelling, though not overpowering, steam. My best option was to search for that powder and any other obvious prophylactic counters to the grease in the doctor's desk. I set my lantern carefully aside, 
noting the now constant lick of yellowish steam curling off the fuel tank, and got to work. There were handfuls of loose paper in every drawer, mostly covered with intricate and nonsensical black scrawlings. Some of them were in vaguely familiar shapes, but otherwise they looked like a bored teenager's bad tattoo ideas. I dug a few binders out from underneath that detritus. They were labeled Patients and Observations of Z and Approved Procedures. I found the vials I was looking for in the thin writing utensil drawer at the top of the desk. There were about ten in total. Some were badly broken and none of them had labels. I popped the lid on one and shook it over the black sludge covering the lantern. Already the stuff had pitted and peeled the green paint over the reservoir. The reaction was immediate and intense, filling the small space with light white smoke. It wasn't half as bad as the reaction had been with Mr. Blot, however, and everything was soon back to normal. The black stuff on the lantern calcified into a crusty, rust-red clump that looked like a massive scab. I tapped it against the side of the desk and the stuff fell away with a crack. I might have celebrated, too, if the goddamn lantern didn't immediately start leaking. It seemed the only thing holding in the fuel was the gunk that had eaten through the metal. Mother, I started, watching the fuel drip and then pull on the desk. I'd have to speed up my searching if I didn't want to find my way out in the dark. Even if the lantern persisted, the things in the pit had covered the floor with more of that caustic mess than I had powder for. I glanced around, hoping I'd find some other 18th century painting to magically free me from this mess. Nothing. Not even the slightest click from overhead. I sighed and sat in the doctor's old swivel chair flipping open one of his binders and trying to formulate a plan. I read a little and found myself shivering, found the air growing ever so slightly thicker around me. The approved procedures binder was gruesome, if clinical. It outlined various things Dr. Starling had tried in his attempts to cure, or at least mitigate, tuberculosis and its symptoms. Dating all the way back to 1905, in a clean and legible hand, he described the benefits of clean air and avoiding smoking in dense populations. Numerous pharmaceutical remedies were mentioned too, including at least a dozen things even a laywoman like myself could tell were nothing more than snake oil. The treatments grew more extreme year by year. Isolation in vacuum tubes, submersion in water of various temperatures... The last entry before I might have arrived in 1920 described a method of removing the lungs while the patient was still alive and trying to massage the white turbocules loose. Included alongside this entry were a dozen hand-drawn sketches of lungs I realized were years of Dr. Starling practicing the lung removal surgery and documenting his results case by case. His handwriting was far less steady by the last drawing, Rushed, but legible. It read, Results too varied. After this, the pages were almost incomprehensible drawings of people's faces. The sort of things a man who can see nothing but shadow might draw. No eyes, no expressions. Just the hazy shapes and lines of a human face. Sometimes even less than that, 
The observations book was so dense I found myself skipping through it like a math student hunting for homework answers in the appendices. Even during this, I saw repeated references to something called Substance Z mentioned over and over again. Blackwell. One of the earliest entries read, Blackwell is a genius if misunderstood. A gentleman for sure. My wife does not like him, but I do. His cultivation of the substance is a hobby. Believe that. I don't. His ideas are extreme, but his results are incredible. How he can be running such a large company and have time for these trivial matters of health are beyond me. Still, cultivating the substance in the sick and destitute is a questionable matter. But if it solves such a terrible affliction, who am I to stand in the way of progress? The entries I read in the intermediate sections of the book detailed the effects of substance C on various patients. Starling's descriptions of what this stuff did to people were cloaked in clinical vagaries I could barely understand, much less penetrate. But the margin notes were fairly illuminating. Patient's roommate incessant with inquiries as to health, he wrote in one place. Possible homosexual. Will that affect results? Police questioned me about patient's whereabouts, he wrote in another entry. Poverty and violence, they said, but he was last seen here. Too many inquiries for such an anonymous city. I flipped to the last entry, dated August 9th, 1924. Christine's expiration truly a final stop, despite applications of Serum Z-36, which showed so much promise, he wrote. I have moved her to Observation Room F and administered a great deal of Serum Z20 in hopes of a possible last-ditch reanimation. It will not serve as a cure. I have truly failed her, but I greatly miss her company. Coraline is a poor substitute for any living woman. There was a thick dot of ink, as though his pen had rested on the page before he continued. If any reanimation occurs... I will add to this entry. Thankfully, the page beneath that was blank. The pages beyond weren't, but they had little in the way of legible writing or even illegible scrawling. Each page was, to the number, smeared over with some dried black substance that cracked and fell away from the paper when I touched it. I gave up on that binder after the stuff gave my fingers an uncomfortable pins and needles feeling. The binder marked Patience was the most routine by far. Starling had taken little in the way of notes on the people he treated. Names, occupations, ages, and dates when the doctor saw them and what he saw them for. The further I got into the binder, there were more dates of death noted, and fewer treatment entries between that day and the day marked as intake. An entry in 1920 caught my eye. Along with the written descriptions... The doctor included occasional drawings of the patients. He had a fairly accomplished hand, though the line work got shakier as the years passed. A woman was marked for intake on the same day the doctor and Coraline had tried to trap me down in this place. Her name was given as Amelia, her occupation as maid, and her age as 24. Beneath the intake date was a dried smattering of blood and some furious scratchings with a charcoal pencil. The woman's face, as the doctor had drawn it, wasn't mine. 
though it was terribly familiar. She was a much more angular woman than I, and even the sketch of her showed a sort of tight coldness in her eyes. She looked like an alley cat that had been friendly one too many times with the wrong sort of stranger. And I felt I had seen those eyes in the mirror when I had spent those months in the Starling household. If anything, that was certainly the look Starling would have seen on my face toward the end. The woman wasn't me, but I felt an extraordinary closeness with her looking at this page. Almost as though my memories of those few months were just some shadow cast by her light. I ran my fingers over her name and felt the impressions of the doctor's pen all these years past. I committed it to memory. Amelia Withrow. I wondered if she had seen what I'd seen, and how much of it was my own imagination. If I hadn't been standing in this godforsaken clinic, listening to those blackened things in the pit coughing and sucking and slurping in their watery prison, I might not believe it at all. As it stood, I had no choice but to believe. My lantern flickered and went out, pitching the room into darkness. The loss of light was so sudden it almost stole my breath away. I did gasp, sounding at least a little foolish, I guess. But given the circumstances, I was quick to forgive myself. I felt around on the desk and touched the chill puddle of fuel my lantern had leaked. I forgot the tank had to remain pressurized and realized this must have drained it much faster. Shit, I said to myself. The things in the water had gone silent with the death of the light, though I could still hear them sloshing around. I felt my way out to the door, wondering if there was a chance in hell I could cast enough of the powder into the room to walk safely. Figuring it to be a moot point, I sighed and cursed Jericho's damnable missing painting. A thunderclap shook the house down to the basement. Sound so sudden and dense I dropped the useless lantern and fell to my knees, clasping my hands over my ears. I looked up and felt the noise again, this time not just hearing it, but actually seeing it pulse down through the house. Every floor was translucent and apparent for the briefest second. Like the momentary daylight of a lightning strike, I could see beyond the walls too, through the treeless hills and into the sky. My consciousness followed the pulsing and ball-shaped wave out into the town of Guncotton and further. I was seeing the entire state and then the country, the entire earth and then the spheres beyond. Beyond, beyond. Further and further until my mind couldn't handle the expressions contained therein. Until I could feel myself unraveling and disjointing. Not the simple and petty flesh of my body or even the more tender and less simplistic collections of firing synapses and memory pathways that made up my thoughts, but the very possibility of me, the solitary electron in an ocean of sand that was my presence in the timeline, the greater plan, a wavering fiber untucked slightly from the twisting, writhing cord that made up my small place in reality. Reality spread infinitely away from me and into itself, both smaller and so much larger than me, these two extremes touched and molded and bonded, creating not an Ouroboros, but a flat, multidimensional weaving that tugged and pulled and fastened me into place. 
In that space, I moved, and the great and endless net of what is and isn't moved with me. The wavering pseudo-electric sphere the typewriter had cast away from itself collapsed as quickly as it had grown. I saw it at the end, my consciousness being rewound and folded and made whole and unique and small enough to again exist within a finite space and time. This inestimable ball collapsed onto itself and peeled away the veneer of what it had laid out before me. But it was not collapsing. It was instead moving in the same direction, which was now the opposite of the manner in which it had originated. Simply enough, it stripped away the blackness and ruin from the walls of the underground clinic as though they were nothing more than bad memories. The actual presence of darkness, too, was torn away, as were all the sounds and breaths of air I had left in that moment. It was a new place altogether, though it had always existed in this way before me, and my presence in it was nothing more than an incidence of reality. Nothing had changed. My head pounded. A broken lantern lay at my feet, the base of it coated in crusted blackness ringing a large hole. A series of pits, really, that had grown their borders until they became the greater void. I took a breath and pulled myself to my feet, leaving the broken lantern and looking around the clinic. It was the clinic, but not the one Starling had overseen the creation of. This place was new. It even smelled new, like a radio fresh out the box. The ceiling had modern LED lights, and I saw thin, silver keycard readers beside the cell doors. The cells, thankfully, were empty, and the grating in the middle of the floor had been replaced by two massive diamond plate panels. Someone had rebuilt it. Whatever I was, they had rebuilt the goddamn clinic. Mrs. Colin? A male voice said. I turned to see him standing beside the receptionist's office. A middle-aged man in a lab coat holding a clipboard. He nibbled at his lip and darted several quick glances behind him. What the fuck did you just call me? I asked him. The question and my tone seemed to really throw him off, and he started backing quickly through the heavy barred door. That was one of the few things that whomever had renovated this place had kept. I I didn't call you. I I didn't say. He stammered. I could see him looking for a place to set the clipboard down so he could grab the door and pull it closed behind him. He outright tossed it on the ground when he saw me rushing toward him. Mrs. Colin... He said, I really think you should stay right there until I speak with your husband. He was pulling the door shut as he spoke. I don't know how you're even down here, but you really shouldn't be, and we have very strict orders. I grabbed the door and pulled to keep it from shutting. He was stronger than me, but I managed to wedge my leg in so the door couldn't close. Now really? I snatched his glasses off his face and tossed them over my shoulder. Oh my god he said, reaching over my shoulders though he were going to snag them out of the air five feet behind me. I let go of the door and grabbed him instead, pulling him awkwardly through the space where my foot had just been. Mrs. Colin, please. He grabbed the bars and tried to hold on, but I started slapping his face as I dragged him backward. He covered his face with his arms and stumbled around me into the main area of the clinic, 
I reared back and kicked him twice in the shin. Jesus, he said, stumbling backward. I slipped through the door and he tried to catch me again, but I wasn't trying to politely lock him away until his husband arrived. I threw my entire body weight into the door. He held on until he realized his fingers would be caught and then pulled back at the last second. The bar shut with a satisfying, oily clunk. The man looked around in a panic. What have you done? He asked me. I only just then noticed the light English accentuation on his words. I'm going to be sacked over this. He turned and tried to find his glasses. To your left, I told him. He adjusted his search, found his glasses, and then began cleaning them. The first thing he did upon returning them to his face was glare at me. Really? He said. That was unmentionably rude. I don't give a shit, I said. What are you doing down here? He crossed his arms and remained silent. I gave him another second to pout before looking around and picking up the clipboard he'd dropped. The papers were all intake forms for a number of patients. Unlike the doctor, these had photographs taped to every page. Also, to the number, each person's occupation read either homeless or none. You shouldn't be reading that, he said. The words came out in a low moan that made it sound more like he was reproaching himself than me. Here, I said, tossing it through the bars. Are you working for Mike? Did he do this? I suppose you know the answer to that, he said, picking up the clipboard. Are you here because you want to be, or is he making you be here? I asked. The man swallowed but said nothing. He busied himself squaring away the upsot pages. What I mean to ask is, do you understand Mike could make you cut your own eyes out of your head and that you'd feel good about yourself while you did it? The man didn't look at me, but his hands froze over the pages. You know, I bet if he found out you'd let me snoop around down here, he'd probably be upset with you enough to do that, given the kind of stuff you're working on. You know you deserve that, right? The man swallowed and remained silent, but I saw his hands were shaking. But I'm pretty sure if you just accidentally locked yourself in the basement like an idiot, that would merit what? A few nasty jokes at best, I asked. The man looked at me now, still silent, but perhaps a little more hopeful. Me? I think you're the kind of idiot that accidentally locked himself in the basement, and I was never down here, right? He nodded twice, sharply. And I'm, for sure, just a normal, quiet, timid little mouse of a housewife, right? He nodded. I smiled and left without another word. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Wow, what a great story. But I have no fucking idea what's going on in it to you. Maybe it'd be a little easier to understand if I had access to a, a written version of the show to follow along with and read back through. Maybe even some, I, I don't know, behind the story information to clear up some of my, my fucking questions. Oh, wait, right there. Yes, <laughs> it says right there. Join the Westside Fairy Tales Patreon today and get access to behind the story audio programs and fully laid out chapters of this story, Scars in Time, and most of the Westside Fairy Tales back catalog for just five measly dollars a month. Wow, what a deal. Oh, it even says here you can get special merch packs and signed posters if you give a, a, a more generous donation. Uh, that means he needs your money, people. This isn't a fucking charity. Okay, go to patreon.com slash westsidefairytales today and subscribe for excellent behind-the-story content and more. That's patreon.com slash westsidefairytales. Link is in the description. And don't forget to watch my show if it's for... Ah, come on! I'm not doing this for free! 
Now back to our story, already in progress. The upstairs of the house was as finished as my version, though certain alterations had been made. The space to the left of the kitchen was now a massive steel-doored dumbwaiter that led down to the basement. Something you could easily move a person on a stretcher with. The rest of the house looked fairly similar to mine, with few notable changes. The lighting, perhaps, wasn't quite as comfortable. It had a sterility to it that gave me a mild headache. The massive central hearth had been modified slightly as well. There was an additional grating installed into the back of the thing, and new openings in the fronts of the sidewalls I figured were breathing throats for the furnace in the sub-basement. Someone knocked on the front door and I looked around the house, half expecting to hear someone rush to answer it. There wasn't a sound. Aside from the man I'd locked in the basement, the place seemed to be empty. I shrugged and answered it myself. Hello, Ashley Colin? Su Yen asked when I opened the door. Su Yen? I asked, incredulously. I'd forgotten she was supposed to come over this afternoon, but how was she here in this version of reality? Yes, hi, how are you? This house is amazing, really. She stepped in past me and waggled her fingers at the ceiling. I didn't know buildings like this even existed in West Virginia. Not that I'm not saying it's like backward here or anything, but I mean, come on. I feel like I'm in a Shirley Jackson novel or something. Me too, I said, looking around myself. Suyin smiled. She was my height with straight dark hair and lime green eyes that matched the trim leather jacket she wore. She clicked plum-colored nails together under her chin. We are going to have to get this place in your author photo somehow, she said, giving me a wry look. You're not even going to pick that one up? I gave her an incredulous look and she sighed. Is then you're going to be a published author? She shook her head at me. Loeb's candlelight imprint preempted with a big fucking offer, sorry for cursing, and they're like weirdly excited about getting that thing to press. She grinned, spread her arms, and then hugged me. Okay, I said. That's a, that's amazing. Everything I'd ever published had gone through candlelight, who are still turning out copies of skull crickets to this day. But not in this reality. Still, I had ended up with them here as well, a strand weaving back into the thread. We have notes from editorial, of course, most of which just amount to more, Suyin said, stepping back. More story, more development, more whatever, just as long as we're getting the total word count up to around 80,000. It's a print cost thing, and apparently Oprah likes them at just about that length when it's these kind of stories. No guarantee on Oprah, but that's what Oprah likes, and we think she might pick this one. Cool, I said. Oprah had liked and recommended Skull Crickets back when it came out in the 90s. I'd had this exact conversation then, only I'd been trying to sound nonchalant about it because I'd been close to having a heart attack. Now I was just sounding nonchalant because I was confused as hell. They're about 90% down for the title, though, she said. The Thumbprint Collection. It's like, almost there, you know, like when you're trying to remember the name of a movie and just like one word is off. She leaned in and wagged a finger at me playfully. But I'm sure we'll figure it out, huh? She stretched her arms over her head. Do you want to go eat? Are you hungry? She asked. 
The familiar rambling of this Su Yin who was so unfamiliar with me was oddly nostalgic and upsetting. I'd never realized how much of a friend my agent was until I met a version of her that didn't know me yet. God, I am just yammering on, huh? Sorry about that. I'm just so excited to meet you. She put her hands on her hips and shook her head. You know, she continued, unabated. We don't normally even accept physical queries anymore, but I thought, what the hell? And then you're writing, the letter you sent in, it was all really weird, like almost too perfect. Like you knew me, really knew me, and just what I was looking for. I smiled. Like we'd been working together for decades, huh? I asked. She gave me that wry look again and pointed a finger at me. Ah, that's a good kind of creepy right there, she said. But really, are you hungry? The front door opened and we both looked in that direction. Mike had come inside and was locking the door behind him. His eyes spent a long, confused second passing over the both of us. And then he gave me a smile I didn't like at all. And who is this? He asked. Suyin Tan, she replied, walking forward with an extended hand. I shot past her, grabbing Mike's wrist in the second before he touched her and holding it against his stomach, wrapping him in an uncomfortable sort of hug. This is my husband, Mike, I said, smiling. He cleared his throat and shook me off. Suyin looked at her hand for a split second and then returned it to her side. She gave a slight tilt of her head and smiled. It's nice to meet you, she said. Likewise, Mike said, turning to me. Where is Emily and what's wrong with your hair? I touched my scalp, feeling my familiar short hair and the threads of scar beneath it. I don't know where Emily is, I said. I honestly wish I could explain exactly how my hair had come to gain that white fishnet pattern, but I figured it would probably upset him. He frowned at my answer and crossed his arms. I told you to keep an eye on her, Ash, he said. You literally have a single responsibility in your life, and I can't trust you with even that. He cleared his throat, coughing hard just once and turning his head away from us to do it. This sickness that's going around is spreading like fucking wildfire and all these goddamn hillbillies are descending on this town for Bobby's fucking clinic. I've told him you can't give people shit for free. They'll just swarm you more and more and more. But does he listen? Mike rubbed his face and then looked up at the ceiling. He sighed. Where's Emily, Ash? He asked, waving his hands around. Where, in fact, is everybody? He said this bit to himself, reaching up to his throat and loosening his necktie. It was a basic, red piece of silk, but for some reason it seemed to shine a little brighter than the other colors in the room. Su Yin cleared her throat. I just stopped by to congratulate your, to congratulate Ashley on her new publishing deal, Su Yin said. She's got a real shot with this novel she's written. Su Yin smiled though her joy was considerably more reserved. Mike gave her a confused look. What? He said. Then something clicked over in his head. Oh, that thing she was typing away at upstairs. People want to read that? He rolled his eyes, 
Okay, good. Well, there are bigger things at work, and I don't really have time for this. He turned to me without looking at me. Ash, have you seen anybody here today? I had one of my workers come over to inspect my project in the basement. The one I'm not supposed to see? I asked. Yes, but he still has to use the front fucking door to get inside, doesn't he? Mike asked. Now he looked at me. Jesus Christ, Ash, did that little bit of pneumonia just completely scramble you? You're the only one in the house to answer the door. I have the only key. Did you, or did you not, answer the door and let anybody inside today? No, I said, glaring at him. Don't look at me like that when you're the one being an idiot, he said. I'm going to leave now, Suyin said, almost shouting. We actually have a meeting, your wife and I, Mr. Colin. It's a very, very important meeting, and we are going to be late if we don't leave right now. Are you ready, Ash? I could tell she was concerned for me. Her old boyfriend, the stalker, had been the same sort of monster, the same sort of predator as Mike. But Mike was far, far more dangerous. I didn't want to run the risk of those hands touching either of us. She's not going anywhere, Mike said dismissively. I was talking to her, Suyin said. She gave me a very direct look. Do you want to go, Ashley? I was stuck with how to handle this. And in that moment of hesitation, Mike rolled his eyes and stretched out his hand to Suyin. That's enough of that. He said. He made to grab her face, but missed wide when she bobbed her head out of the way. It was a strong, practiced movement that gave her a few feet of space to work with. What the fuck are you doing? She asked. He lurched forward again, and this time she grabbed the low part of his hand by his wrist and twisted, tucking his arm against her body. The move should have ended with Mike flipping around onto the floor, but instead he just hopped a few feet to regain his balance and laughed. Oh, there. He said, that was impressive. She touched his skin, that was it. He adjusted his posture and I could see her in full, the slack face and the empty eyes. She looked like a junkie buzzing after a fix. Do you like that? Her head nodded lazily. I tiptoed closer, seeing the moment I'd been waiting for. Su Yin always carried pepper spray in her purse, especially when she was traveling. Mike's back was to me, and her purse was dangling from the crook of her elbow. I haven't had an Asian girl in years, Mike said to himself. He'd cupped her chin in his hand and had her face pointed up to his. He ran his thumb over her lips, slightly smearing her lipstick over the corner of her mouth. Maybe if I let Ash do this publishing, whatever, I'll be able to have you come by a few times a year. How about that? You want to come by and I'll make you feel good? Beneath the dead eyes, I saw something working in Su Yin. Her jaw was flexing along with her fists. The purse on her arm rose slightly as her hand clenched. I dipped my fingers into it, fumbling around for the spot where she always taped the bottle in place. When she'd first shown it to me years ago, she said she'd gotten the idea from the movie Die Hard. It was a shame to put duct tape on a Gucci bag but worse to not be able to find your pepper spray when you needed it. I wrapped my fingers around the can just as Mike wrapped his around my wrist. I felt the heroin-sweet sickness of his little parlor trick flooding into me. 
What are you doing? He asked, pulling my hand out of the purse. He laughed when he saw the pepper spray bottle. Seriously? Is that for me, Ash? I thought I broke you out of that years ago. He sighed and shook his head. You know, I really did love you when we were kids. But you are such an obstinate, useless bitch these days. Slinking away to write that stupid fucking book, losing our goddamn daughter in the middle of a white trash pandemic. It's like you're becoming a different person lately. He gave me a disappointed shake of his head and I felt more of the stuff inside him pouring into me. That chemical honey that slicked up the sides of my brain. But inside all that feeling, something older, meaner, and more familiar. A rusted fish hook slipping out of the sky and into my throat. Catching in my guts and jerking upward. Ripping at me. Hurting me. Setting me free. I've been talking with my people about a presidential run, and they say my wife is going to be a crucial component to getting the base on board, he said, to himself as much as to me. But you're a fucking potato on the best of days, and look at this shit. Mike moved my hand up further. He meant to say something else just then, but I sprayed him in the eyes, and that was it. He screamed and fell backward, rubbing at his face. The feel of him went too, and then only the fishhook remained, deep in my guts. Suyin gasped like a woman just surfacing after a hundred-meter dive and fell backward against the railing of the large central staircase. Mike lunged for me and I sprayed him again, accidentally dosing myself in the process. He missed the first tackle, but made the second, sending us tumbling in a coughing, snotting pile rolling around the floor. You fucking bitch! He screamed, swinging his hands wildly in the direction of my face. He wasn't trying to wipe my mind anymore, he was just trying to kill me. Thankfully, his eyes were red, swollen knobs weeping like perforated assholes, and nearly every punch he threw missed and crunched into the floor beside my head. Nearly. A few of them managed to get me in the face and temple, filling my head with stars. He was a large enough man, too, that I was suffocating beneath the weight of him. At some point, he managed to get atop me, and now all I could do was cover my face and try to dodge his punches. Then I saw it. His necktie. Crimson and almost shining in the pale green haze of pain he was trying to drown me in. It was the red rag in the light of Jericho's Medusa. Hope. Salvation. I wrapped my hands in it and twisted. The reaction was not immediate. He kept trying to punch me, but with my hands twisted up at his necktie, I was safely inside the range of his fists. Then he began choking, a harsher, raspier sound even than what the pepper spray had done to him. He tried to undo my hands, but I was too tight to his body for him to get any purchase. He settled for lifting his own body up and then slamming me down against the floor. On the second hit, I almost lost consciousness. I felt a dull sort of numbness spread through my body when my skull cracked against the ground. I screamed when I felt that numbness reach my fingers, willing them to stay clenched, daring them to let up for a second. I would chew them each off to the bone if they failed me now, and I woke up in that godforsaken basement. He reared up again, but the impact never came. I felt, instead, 
my own body being dragged in a circle over top him. Through the miasma of pain and adrenaline, I saw Su Yin's face. Her teeth gritted as she flipped us over. This was the moment. I spun over top Mike, my fingers so entwined in his necktie my eyes couldn't separate the knots of flesh and fabric. The tie slipped, caught, and bound tightly over his throat. I reared back, digging my knees into his shoulders. His head lay between my thighs. Su Yin had her entire body wrapped around his knees and legs. Mike's face turned red and purple. Then it swelled and his eyes became fat and bloodshot, managing to push through the swollen flesh of his eyelids. His hands slapped at me, at his face. The gestures were feeble and ultimately pointless. In the end, he wrapped his fingers around my wrist and I felt that honey one last time. It was inconsistent. Barely there. The wilted, posy, a shitty boyfriend brings around after you finally cut things off for good. Then it was gone. He was dead. Children, children, gather around and place your hand in the air. That's right. Fingers splayed wide, wide, wide so the wind can pass between them. Carry that sweet scent of trade on to the nose of the Witcher. We are gathered here today in non-existence, awaiting the strike of the pen, the clatter of the keyboard, the moment when I might be introduced to the ears of the masses, so that our work can spring forth anew in the hearts of millions that we are carried on the wings of angels. Say true, our words must be electrified. Amen. Our words must be clarified. Amen. Our words must be carried wide. Amen. So go out there, little brothers, little sisters, and spread the gospel on social media. Put us on Reddit, put us on the Facebook, and put us on the Twitter, praise her. Share us far and wide, so that I might become and my story made clear. At WS Fairy Tales on Twitter, Westside Fairy Tales on Facebook and Instagram. The link tree is in the description. Praise her name. Praise her, mm, praise her, yes. And let us together drive this sin from gun cotton womb. Raise your hands now. Raise your hands. Now back to our story already in progress. It took Su Yin and I about three minutes to get my fingers untangled from his necktie and to work some feeling back into them. She massaged each one until they were turned back to a fairly normal color. Neither of us spoke for a long time. The only sounds were our own heavy breathing and the oddly fitting posthumous burps and farts coming from Mike. Are you okay? 
Su Yin finally asked. Are you? I asked her. We killed him. She gave Mike a long look. For a moment, I felt like she was actually looking at somebody else. Fuck him, she said. She fell back on the tile. You owe me a new pepper spray. I laughed and laid down as well. Despite the dead body beside me, I felt pretty good. I'd killed him again, and I didn't feel bad about it. There were no regrets now, 30 years down the road. Real or not real, me or not me. I knew in a deep way that any mics I might run into on any strands of this woven fabric that made up reality were all just as mortal. I could kill them too, no doubt. And I would, if I got the chance. We need to call the police? Su Yin asked. Offered, really. Like she had no idea what to do next. She actually didn't, I realized. No. I said, not the police. I hitched up my hips and pulled my wallet out of the back pocket of my jeans, fishing through it until I found the card I was looking for. I had a strong feeling the number would work no matter what reality I found myself in. Hey, Suyin, can I borrow your phone? I asked. A second later, I heard the rasp of plastic sliding over the floor toward me. Up on Scars in Time. Ash has proven to herself beyond a shadow of a doubt that anywhere she exists, if Mike's there, she can and will kill him. He's no longer a stain in her heart, but there are other problems. She's trapped in Ashley Colin's version of reality with no way out, and even if she had one, it wouldn't fix what was wrong with gun cotton. With little else in the way of options, she reaches out to the one person she knows might be able to help. I hope you'll join us next episode for Scars in Time, Chapter 18. The Painting. And until next time, as always, stay safe out there. Westside Fairy Tales is written, read, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell. Original audio filmed on location in Sutton, West Virginia, and Louisville, Kentucky. Engineering and sound design by WSF Productions, LLC. Episode art by Yui Breedlove. All content herein copyright 2021, WSF Productions, LLC.
Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small-town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused, Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Dark Fiction Podcast, due for release by Henlo Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.